0: Hello, I'm Diana Thomas.
1: And I'm Tom Harper.
0: Welcome to That
1: Wilbur Smith Show, a podcast about the historical, geographical, natural, and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. Africa is ancient, vast, monumental, a land of death and renewal. We may think man is the dominant species, but on these everlasting plains with the blue sky hazed by a searing sun, the rhythms of life are indifferent to us. Here we are allowed freedom, our spirit its release, but only if in return we offer respect, loyalty, and humility.
0: Those are the opening words of On Leopard Rock, uh, Wilbur Smith's. Uh, memoirs, uh, that were published in 2018. And just as the very first words of his first novel, When the Lion Feeds, somehow carry within them the seed of all the works that are to follow. So this first paragraph is kind of a distillation of, I suppose, almost the most important aspect of Wilbur Smith as a human being which is that he's an African and that his ent- experience of life is fundamentally formed by growing up in that continent. So uh, Tom, tell me about what you felt when you first started reading On Leopard Rock and how much you kind of saw the man you knew and had worked with in the book that you were reading.
1: I find it, I mean, it's a it's a brilliant read, and he has had a brilliant life, uh, which kind of shines through in every page. I think what I felt most strongly, having only uh, known him quite late in his life, was, as I say, first of all, what an extraordinarily rich life he had had. But with my authorial hat on, very much thinking, oh my gosh, I completely get the Courtney's now, and I understand where that's come from. Um, because what you get uh, from 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 this memoir is just how close to his characters, uh, particularly Sean Courtney in When the Lion Feeds, um, he is. In fact, uh, Sean has the same birthday as Wilbur, the uh, the ninth of January.
0: Although he actually says in the book that he first says that both Sean and Garrick, his twin brother kind of came out of his own life and kind of Sean is his father's side and Garrick is his mother's side because his mother introduced him to literature but later on in the book he actually says that Garrick is the one to whom he feels closest and maybe Garrick is as it were the closer to the real Wilbur and Sean is more the the kind of projection of the fool I mean, Ga- Gary Cotterill has a wounded leg and and Wilbur had a wounded leg. Yes.
1: So. Uh, and of course, Wilbur got polio as a boy, which had left him with a weakened right leg. I mean, I, there's this theory that I've seen on the Internet. Um, I don't know where it comes from, that uh, Gary is the person Wilbur was afraid he was. And Sean is the person he wanted to be. Uh, but I think it's um, but I mean, the, but the answer is, is he's both. Yes, because there's there's a great bit um Again, this I mean, we're going to see these parallels all the way through this episode, but there's a bit in When the Lion Feeds where uh, Waite's father, sorry, Waite, Courtney, the, the father, presents Sean and Garrick with their first rifles. Um, and it's this tremendous rite of passage. And for Sean, it's the best day of his life. And Garrick is uh, secretly disappointed because he wanted a complete set of Dickens. Um, and... Then in uh, in Leopard Rock you get the same moment in Wilbur's life where his father presents him with a gun, which is actually is not a new gun; it's his grandfather's gun, already notched with all the dozens of of, of hunts that it's it's been used in. Um, and for Wilbur, this is absolutely the most thrilling day of his life. Yes, I'm sure that that tension was always within him, as I think it's within all of us. You know, are we living our best selves or our, our worst selves? Um, but he, uh, yeah, cle- clearly he. he he is f- far more than, than just Garrett Courtney.
0: Funny you should mention that thing about the rifle because I literally I had it bookmarked here. I was eight years old when my father, Herbert Smith, gave him my first rifle, a twenty-two Remington. I shot my first animal shortly afterwards. and My father ritually smeared the animal's blood on my face. I was a new hunter, the blood the mark of an emerging manhood. I refused to bathe for days afterwards. And then, of course talks about the grandfather who is the man who was called courtney james smith from whom the name courtney has taken and who had had this incredibly glamorous life leading a uh, convoys of of, of, of of stuff up from the coast to the Whitwatersrand gold rush towns and and working as a soldier and a hunter and all sorts of things an, an elephant hunter he uh, he shot elephant for the meat to sustain his family, and and I think this goes back to another thing, which is which is that that his work, some people's work comes from. I mean, for example, J.K. Rowling and Hogwarts. Of course, there are personal impulses in it, but I think I can safely say that she's never flown a broomstick and played cottage or or made a spell or anything like that. Whereas Wilbur absolutely had done the things he wrote about. And one of the things that's fascinating about Leopard Rock is the various things he does, particularly in the early part of his career, to really research and learn and experience everything he's going to turn into fiction.
1: Yeah, but... He's a lot of it is kind of the research by doing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so he's uh, he writes a lot about going out with his friend, um, going hunting, um, and they would go out from dawn to dusk, or some sometimes overnight. I think, um, and <laughs> a very different attitude to parenting um, than than we have now. Um, and again, you read those scenes and all you see is those opening pages of um, When the Lion Feeds, when when Sean and Garrick are out there hunting, you know, first pheasants and then then the Inconquer. Uh, so yeah, he's he, he is, even though it's important to stress that Wilbur's growing up in, I guess, the 1930s um, and Sean Courtney is growing up in the 1870s. So it's already 60 years earlier. So it would be as us writing about someone growing up during the Second World War, which is obviously a very different experience of childhood to what we have now.
0: I wonder how much, but I had the land changed that much? I mean, there are, there's, there's, there are wonderful passages, for example, every year, his favourite thing that happened in the year was they old would all, all go on safari.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and, and, and there are two things which, which were really striking when he first describes that. The first is that the family would go on safari, accompanied by trucks filled with 20 or 30 of their their native staff.
1: Yeah. But the other
0: thing is, very, very early in On Leopard Rock, the camp where they are on safari is attacked by three lions. And then Wilbur's father emerges from his tent wearing only his pyjama tops because he's been asleep, brandishing only a gun and shoots three lions dead in front of the terrified Wilbur and his younger sister. So the image of the heroic, powerful, lion-killing father, which which is such an absolute staple of, of Wilbur's life, I mean, it's seared on his brain. He's not, as it were, writing about the father he wished he had. When he has these larger-than-light father things, that's his dad, who would then, in a later episode, fly his tiger-moth plane, to rescue Wilbur and his best friend after they'd got hopelessly lost up in the hills and couldn't find their way back to the... Was it the truck they'd borrowed, the jeep? The the jeep they'd borrowed to, to, to go out there. And he rescues them from certain death. There you have the genesis of all those extraordinary alpha males that, that Wilbur's going to write about.
1: Yeah, and Wilbur doesn't in any way try to hide this. I mean, if you look at the opening of uh, chapter two of On Leopard Rock, my father, Herbert, meant everything to me. He was my God. I loved him with every inch of my being. Um, I mean, it doesn't get more direct and absolutely heart-on-sleeve than that. No, and
0: and meanwhile, you have his mother, who's the literary, gentle character. Very beautiful, actually, if you look at the pictures. She's gorgeous. Mm. And... And and um and of course his mother had an amazing collection of books, and it was she who introduced Wilbur to the kind of magic of the written word by reading him stories from the books every night and filling his head with, with stories. So the, the two strands of the mother and the father are kind of knotting together to create. To create them. Yeah,
1: and this this um, he talks about how he sort of his father didn't really believe in books, certainly not in fiction. So he he hides his books near the outhouse, uh, and he reads on the toilet, and to the point where his father thinks he has some kind of stomach complaint uh, because he's spending so long there,
0: stuffed with castor oil or something to make. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Stum- stomach trouble he had doesn't actually. Happen yeah. Better.
1: Yeah, but which, again, you see in When the Lion Feeds, because you know, that's Garrick, you know, sort of yes, reading yes. his books in secret. Mm. Um, so so there is, um, we talked uh, previously about how for all Garrick's faults and the fact that he has this very sad decline and he ends up being a very sort of passive, forlorn character. Um, there's always a sympathy about, he never loses our sympathy. Um yeah which in a way that uh, a different writer might have just made him an out-and-out Badden, um, who we just despise. But, but Wilbur always has that sympathy for him, and I think that is because there, there are clearly elements of Garrick within him.
0: Um, one of the other things that's extraordinary about about Wilbur's story is that is that a few years after his father shot Three Lions, so did he. Aged just 13 years old, hmm. and his parents were away, He's gone out, he's been left with the task of managing their herds of cattle um, and the animals on their farm, a very, very large farm. And he's out with his pony when he comes across some mutilated animals and realizes too late that the lions that mutilated them are still there. So he shoots them. I mean, he he has to shoot them. This is not a question of some sort of irresponsible slaughter of animals. There's a lioness, and after all, the lioness is the hunter, who attacks him. So he has no, no 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 option but to shoot her. And then I think he's attacked again. And the third one, he shoots just because he's learned you can't wait around. So he has, as a boy, this series of encounters. In fact, there's two life-threatening encounters with black mambas, just about the most dangerous snake there is, one of which bites him in the pith helmet. Uh, which and uh, leaving the fangs and the, and the venom behind, which would otherwise have pierced his body.
1: Uh, yeah, an inch either way, and there'd be no Wilbur Smith books for us to enjoy. Yes,
0: um, but then perhaps the most dangerous thing, or the most terrible trauma he faces is actually not any of these um, man-eating or man-killing animals, but he's sent away to school. And there's a and speaking of someone who was also sent away to school at a very young age, um, I must say I felt a strong sense of kinship with with. The portrait he portrayed, he gave of this bookish little child in a, in a kind of beastly Dickensian, Roald Dahlian hell of a prep school in the 1930s, yeah, late 1930s in the wartime. Are you a fellow boarding school?
1: I only did one year at boarding school and it was when I was 18, so it was um, much easier. So thankfully, I didn't have to endure that.
0: I I did a full 10-year stretch.
1: Gosh, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, significant crimes you can commit that will get you less than 10 years. And,
0: (laughs) And, And the psychotherapy costs you less too.
1: <laughs> yes um but of course again you see that in when the lion feeds uh when sean and garrick go to the school um in in ladyburg i think it is and um and the schoolmaster there is again a sort of roald dahl-esque kind of um horrible teacher and getting up and basically beating up the teacher
0: it's, a very, it's a very interesting where it's not it's not like matilda being cleverer than Mrs. miss trunch no <laughs> assistance and it's funny no, no. In, in a Wilbur Smith world, the way that the pupil gets his—but then again, think how much wish fulfillment is in that. I mean, gosh.
1: Yes, and and of course, as um, you know, as a parent of um, teenage boys myself now, uh, the idea that they go up to their teachers and start kind of punching them is clearly abhorrent. Um, but at a, in that moment, as the reader, you're absolutely on the side of Sean, and and Wilbur has created this ghastly—he's a very minor character. I mean, I don't know how much page time he gets, probably three or four pages but uh wilbur has made him so ghastly that you absolutely are with sean when he is um giving him his comeuppance and of course he goes back to his father um and it, but after they've been expelled for beating up teacher and his father says basically says hey, this is in, in the novel um well you know i think you've had enough of school anyway it's time time we put you to work and is <laughs> actually thinks this is a tremendous uh sort of step forward
0: yes no well, it, it, and to be fair in order to survive out in, in the wilds of Africa, you probably need to be tough enough to be able to beat up a teacher or something. I mean, that's, that's probably more, a more valuable commodity. But, I mean, he... he it's, when, and when you get into um, On Leopard Rock, the school scenes, I think, are very, very good. And, um, and the particular... I mean, and, and there's the... Rather sad thing, which is that at his prep school, although it's utterly horrible and you can get beaten for the slightest misdemeanor.
1: Yeah, the Cordwallis school, I um, think it was
0: called. That, I mean, certainly in the 60s, when I first went to, to boarding school, that was still, well, not so much girls' schools, but in boys' schools, were still a huge thing. um But there's this one teacher, his, his English teacher, who recognizes in him seeds of his talent and who supports him and who gives him prizes for writing and who encourages him to read different authors and 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 to whom Wilbur clings means kind of like those teachers this sort of life raft through his prep school years and then he gets up to Michael House which is reported to be the Eaton of South Africa. Etonians might object to
1: that. (laughs) Oh I mean Michael Houseians might object to that come to that.
0: Well indeed um, and perhaps, perhaps a good reason. Why be <laughs> slandered? Um, but, but there, there's no one who's interested in the things he's interested in. And there's this just bleakness of thrashings, awful stories of, of masters who would mark out with a chalk line. They would, they would draw a line across the pupil's bottom which, at which they would aim in order to thrash them all the more accurately. And the beatings were all carried out, I think, on a Saturday evening or something. And any misdemeanors you'd accumulated would would count as separate beating offences. And instead of just getting, as it were, well, however many thwacks you needed for the amount of offences, you'd be thwacked. Then you'd have to sit down. Then all the other boys would go around. Then you'd be called up again and again and again for separate beatings until you'd been sufficiently punished. I mean, is it any wonder that South Africa descended into some kind of appalling sort of semi-penal colony status? Because this is what was happening to its, its elite.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a bit where he, um, he he talks about it. Um, Michael House was a debilitating experience. There was no respect for the pupils. The teachers were brutal. The prefects beat us, and the senior boys bullied us. It was a cycle of violence that kept perpetuating itself. So, yeah, that's um, exactly what you're describing. And it's, it's no wonder that people... So many people come out of that with some pretty warped ideas about life. My father went to England's Eton, um, which is say say Eton. And, or England's Michael House, maybe.
0: England's Michael House. Um, in between about 47 and 52, I think. Um, and in, when he was there, house captains, of which he was one, were allowed to beat boys. Uh, he always says he didn't. And I can believe it because he was a very gentle, loving man.
1: Yeah. And of course, um, Wilbur talks in his book then about how um, obviously he survives this without um, becoming this sort of brutal or Mm. brutal person. Um, uh, And of course, he talks very lyrically about how reading was his refuge, um, uh, my exclusion zone. So and it's interesting, again, thinking about Wilbur and Sean and Garrick, because what you get in When the Lion Feeds is Garrick uh, is, is able to enter this sort of dissociative state when he is in trouble Yes. Uh, after, after his leg is, has been shot off uh, and and it comes back uh, a, a few times uh, and he, he basically blacks out and has no knowledge of what's happening. Um, and I thought of that when I was reading, Will were talking about how reading was his exclusion zone. Um, and with Garrick, it's interesting with Garrick it's actually how he wins his VC because he's at Rourke's um, and the Zulus are about to break into the the, the infirmary where the wounded are being kept. Uh, and again, in, in kind of classic Garrick way, he doesn't set out to be a hero. He's trying to run. He trips, falls. His arm Again, this is sort of classic Wilbur as well. His arm lodges in the bars on the door that are for barring it shut and he so his his forearm basically bolts the door shut uh, and the zulus hammer on the door so his arm is snapped Um, but he's in this dissociative state so he just doesn't even know what's going on he's just there with his mangled arm blocking the door while the um the invalids are able to get out of the hospital um and as a result he, he because it looks phenomenally brave that he's bar the door with his own body um he wins his vc but it's it's he's in the, actually in that dissociative state so i think there's something kind of quite slightly mischievous there with wilbur uh, i mean he's very good at um although his characters can be very heroic wilbur is very has no truck with kind of um conventional um ideas of heroism and he, he's quite good at puncturing uh the, our, our kind of conventional heroes uh, and I think there, you know, the fact that Garrick wins a VC for basically tripping and falling, uh, and and then blacking out, is Wilbur's kind of slightly sly way of um, puncturing that.
0: Um, and and you're right, there is a there is a mischievousness there, and um, and I think I think it's important to know that that Wilbur was, as it were, the kid who was bullied rather than the strapping. As much as you then hear about him being a scuba diver a rock climber, a hunter, you kind of know from early on in his own book that there is what you might call that garrick side to him, which is the bullied, bookish, sensitive, you know, somewhat outsiderish type of character.
1: Yeah. And, of course, the other thing I think we need to mention is that, in a, in a sense, um that one of the key events in Garrick's life is when Sean accidentally shoots his leg off. Yeah. Um, and in, Wilbur talks about it again, um, that when he was 16, he contracted polio. Um, and uh, he talks about how his right leg became kind of weak and withered. Um, although he uh, was then able to kind of, uh, luckily he recovered and was um, able to, obviously to live a very full life. Yeah, That that, that those scenes of, of Garrick lying in bed, convalescing um, and kind of desperate to um, to kind of get back to rights again. I, clearly, there is there is sort of first hand experience, uh, even though it's obviously not quite, thankfully not quite as dramatic as having it shot off. Um, but clearly, there's first hand experience in that.
0: I, th- I think that I think was I think though it's important for Wilbur as a writer that that he has this frailty and this vulnerability. If he were um, like for example you know if he were some ex-SAS man who was you know just was sort of kind of like a one-track mind he'd be a much less interesting writer and a much less sympathetic writer it's the fact that he understands as it were what it's like to be the victim and what it's like to be on the receiving end of unfairness of cruelty of brutality of punishment of 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 a stroke of fate that leaves you weak yeah. i think that that really makes for a much much more well-rounded and a much more interesting person whose characters are therefore going to be more well-rounded as well and have a broad yes bandwidth if you like
1: Yes. And um, if we talk about how, you know, in a sense, all of an author's characters uh, reflect aspects of them, the, having such a breadth of, 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 of within yourself, having so many multitudes within you, um, it gives you a vast range to draw. on. Mm. I think as well, just um, as we're talking about it, we talked when, when the Lion Feeds, you know, Sean Courtney suffers and suffers and suffers. Um, you know, all the people he loves die horribly yes. um, or tragically or both. Um, And in a sense, those are the trials that a person like Sean needs because he is so strong and so competent uh, that... It takes a lot to bring him down, yeah. Um, and in a sense, I think that's why the story is so dramatic, because the the, the challenge has to be equal to, greater than, or equal to the hero. Uh, because Sean is is such a strong character, he needs these really massively dramatic um, twists of fate to, to bring him down, and that's what gives the story this, this really high drama.
0: Yeah, and and, and um, that that kind of repeats itself, not repeats itself, but you see this happening. Through the complete body of works, where where his characters are, there's a sort of testing, and it's also a sense that of kind of paying the price for things and then being redeemed or not being redeemed. That that things come at a cost. That yeah. that anything worth having is going to come is going to bear a price with it. Um, and then and then just to carry on with his life. You know, I think he starts coming to his own a bit more. He goes to university, at to, to um, Cecil Rhodes University, and starts to become, discovers women, drives a Ford Model T, painted pink, interestingly enough.
1: Yes, uh, with a sign on the back which said, Peaches, this is your can.
0: To which the only possible reply is, and here's your sugar and cream.
1: <laughs> yeah, not what you'd have predicted.
0: Quite a, quite a hippie thing. I was, I was trying to do the math. I thought, well... He was born in 1933, so he's at university kind of 1819. So it's kind of 1951, 52 we are at. Mm. But what he's got is something which is kind of much more like a 1967 hippy-dippy mini you know. But So it's kind of brave of him to begin driving around in a pink Ford Model T. (laughs) And and then he tells also a story, which again is very like something out of a novel, where where he has this relationship with a female student, she's grassed up by another female student because she's been out of college when she shouldn't be. Because in, in those days, the male students could go wherever, wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, but the female students had to have special permits to be allowed out, kind of basically under curfew. And And he... They have this relationship, and one day she's sort of creeping back into college um, late. Um, and and, a, and, a, and some older female student, who plainly, I don't know, she's jealous or just, you know, feeling malicious, reports her. And both of them are, 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 are put, sent before the university chancellor or tutor, whatever it is. And Wilbur and the the girl is then basically rusticated. She's she's kicked out of the college, hopefully to return. If you're rusticated, you usually be allowed back after a while. But she's punished very severely. And then the then the the the, the, the disciplinarian turns to Wilbur and says, "Well, you know, she's a naughty girl, very pretty, and, and I don't blame you for being tempted." And and sort of basically gives him a slap on the wrist. Mm. It's entirely unjust, which he's perfectly well aware of, by the way. And again, you sort of think that sense of things that happen to people unfairly for reasons that are beyond their control. It's a very useful episode from a writer's point of view where everything is material, you know, and that's very good material.
1: Yeah, and I think as as writers, we all know that nothing gets an audience going like injustice. Like if, if there is an injustice to be righted, um, or that our protagonist has suffered, then boy is the reader on their side and you will not stop reading until you've seen them put it right. So it's this just tremendously powerful narrative force.
0: Late, much later on in the book, he reveals that driving through Durban, I think one day, he stops at a traffic light and a late middle-aged woman is waiting by the lights, or I think maybe in another car or, or walking along the street. And their eyes meet and he thinks, oh my goodness, that's her. That's the <laughs> yeah. girl. And she just mouths the word Wilbur at him and <laughs> smiles, and they go their separate ways. Yeah. It's just a kind of, you know, a, a yeah. great.
1: I think the other thing that's interesting from this episode is um, he quotes this. Uh, in the memoir you know whoever loved that loved not at first sight um, which is a quote from as you like it um and clearly that's that was his experience of just you know seeing someone and, and falling for them at first sight and again uh, you get that very strongly in when the lion feeds um when uh when sean meets katrina or sees katrina um and within the space, space about two pages is willing to swim across the raging torrents of the limpopo in full spate uh, well, exactly. Just 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 to uh, to stop her getting away Bill from. has
0: him. the right to expect that a man, if he's taking it at all seriously, will swim across the Limpopo. Yeah. Who came? Who was it who swam across the Hellespont? There's some mythical character.
1: Alexander the Great. I don't know if it's that. I can't remember. If it's that. Or is it F- or Fre- Frederick Barbarossa possibly? The point
0: is that a, a proper hero will do that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, wh- while we're on the subject of Wilbur's relations with women. One of the things that's always fascinated me um, about his books is how popular they are with female readers. And there are a number of women um, who would have grown up, i get been growing up in the 60s, I guess, when, when The Lion Feeds was published, who, when I tell them that I work with Wilbur, you know, they, they, they sort of the schoolgirl in them comes out and they start getting slightly trembly uh, and talk about how much When The Lion Feeds kind of meant to them and opened their eyes. Um, and and I find it fascinating because it's such a masculine book. Uh, you know, Sean is such a, a man's man. It's making his way in cattle ranching and gold fields and war and hunting. Um, and the female characters are sort of few and far between uh, and generally, not all of them, but generally don't come out terribly well. So what is it?
0: I think that people underestimate the degree which heterosexual women like masculine men. I mean, <laughs> it's a very unfashionable thing to say, yeah. but not necessarily untrue. I mean, you know, for example, Jack Reacher, to, to mention you, you like in our previous episode, you mentioned Lee Child. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been to a crime writer's convention and seen the queue of women queuing mm. up <laughs> to have Lee Child sign their Jack Reacher books, it's the same thing. And also, I think, again, if you were, if you were to girls' school in the 60s, the very naughtiness, which mild by today's standards was still enough to have the book censored by the South African authorities, yeah, would be would be tremendously exciting. And I mean, and and you know, if you think about, um, because of course the t- two of the three key women, well, actually probably four key women in the book, his mother, yeah, um, Candy, the the bar girl, Metro well, she's the owner, the owner of the saloon keep saloon keeper. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, with a heart of gold, but also these two teenagers, uh, Anna and Katrina, who are both, you know, experiencing sex and men for the first time. Yeah. So if you were a teenage girl in the 60s, you, you would have identified very strongly with one or both of those girls. Yeah. Because because he's, he gets into their heads, I think, very fairly and very reasonably. Yeah. Katrina is 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 as it were a heroine who has a terrible fate. Anna is a bit more of a mm, girl gone wrong. <laughs> um, and there's also strawberry, strawberry pie. Uh,
1: strawberry, Audrey, yeah, Audrey Pie. Audrey yeah.
0: Pie is known as strawberry pie. Yep. Again, but she's again girls relate to that the girl who can't quite have. The gorgeous boy who the prettiest yeah. girl gets. You know, it's probably more relatable to more girls than being the pretty girl.
1: Yeah. I suppose also, just as you're talking, I'm thinking uh, the way Anna seduces Sean, where she, he's going fishing. And <laughs> it's a hilarious scene. I mean, again, people sort of forget how funny Wilbur could be. Um, where, where Sean's going fishing and Anna's sort of sitting in his way and she basically insists that she um he lets her come along he says okay as long as you don't talk (laughs) and so she doesn't talk long enough that she knows he won't leave her because they've gone far enough that it would be too much of a pain to take her back and then she starts chatting and Sean's getting more and more irritated and they get to the pool and she strips naked and jumps in to go for a swim and Sean's kind of horrified and then he sort of starts noticing bits of her and think oh actually maybe this is more interesting than I thought it was and he's completely kind of clod-headed. Uh, um, probably that kind of frank um, depiction of kind of young female desire. And actually it's the woman, it's the the girl um, kind of leading this on. And, and she, she's the one who, who, who very frankly wants it. Uh, and she has to kind of coax him into, uh, in, into sex. Uh, I'm guessing... Right, so Newsflash, teenage girls... Well, yeah, but probably in 1964, it probably was a newsflash. Yeah. You
0: know, it's, it's kind of a newsflash now. I mean, yeah. nowadays we've got such a culture of kind of, um, you know, me too, not me too, yeah, um, it, yeah me too, and, and, and just the sort of the sense of toxic masculinity and everything. that people forget that actually, you know, like as my grandmother used to say, and I think it was a quote from Woodhouse, nothing pinks like propinquity. If you put teenagers of the opposite sex in close proximity... Wilbur is very unashamed about sex. And I think it's partly because it's almost as if he doesn't distinguish between animal mating and human mating. So, so there's no great sense. Of course, there's love, but there's no embarrassment about describing the physicality of it in the same way that he describes the physicality of animals. He describes humans kind of equally, if that makes any sense. There's no, there's no sense of puritanism or guilt Or, you know, I think that can be quite And these days, again, it's kind of we're in a very prudish age. People don't like to think so, but we are. Oh, yeah, hugely. And and it's kind of become shocking for, for, for sort of political reasons. But that doesn't alter the fact that boys and girls and indeed boys and boys and girls and girls, lots of people when they're young are full of hormones you know (laughs) yeah Yeah, we've all been there yeah one of the things also about wilbur is that he writes about africans which again now be tremendously problematic but from the experience of somebody who considers themselves african he definitely considered himself african oh yeah yeah he was absolutely used to living with talking to having friends with and relationships you know working relationships with um black Africans. He's very interesting on 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 the on the because one of the very early things he did in his writing career after after um when the lion Feeds had been a big hit, one of the books he did very soon after that was Gold, Gold Mine, hmm. made into the film Gold. And he spent, I think, three months down a gold mine, basically. And he's very interesting about the interrelationship of the different African tribes and also the white and the black African miners at a time of apartheid when they racially couldn't socialize together, but they were dependent on one another in a mine, you can't afford to be racist because the guy next to you it doesn't really matter sneakko is if anything goes wrong, he may save your life you know yeah um and i think I think it's important to recognize that. He's describing people as he's seen them. He's not making it up, which I think is important when he's talking it, When, when, For a white author to be writing about black characters now, again, it's, it's a very sensitive thing. Yeah. But as I say, he he would have regarded himself, he did regard himself absolutely as an African, and would criticize African leaders or individuals just the word European needles.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. When I uh, was in Cape Town, I did the the tour of Cape Castle, which, uh, as we know, was uh, partially built by uh, the courtly ancestors. Um, and one of the first things the tour guide said was African as a word. We think it doesn't mean black. Um, it was originally, you know, I think it's a Roman word, describing you know North Africans yeah. um, because that was the Africa they knew. Hmm. So... Um, it, in its original meaning, it's actually um, has a completely different meaning. Um, and there's, it's just the way it's come to be used that we, we think of African, or we I mean, use terms like Afro Caribbean or African American, um, that we're, 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 it's sort of meaning black. But it, it doesn't have to. And certainly, I always think, um, you know, we, we only live the lives we lead. And if you're Wilbur and you're born in Africa and you grow up in Africa and you live in Africa, well, where else are you from? You know, the the, the 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 politics and the lines on the maps and and the history and how everyone got there may be incredibly convoluted, but ultimately, you know, you you only live your life. Um and and his life was in Africa.
0: He once told me uh, one of our interviews, um, and I, I know this is kind of not the exact words, but words to the effect that he that that he'd been talking to a black friend, and his black friend said, The problem with all you basically you white people is that you? You you come from the cold and the dark, and this makes you inherently gloomy. Whereas we come from the sun and the heat, and this makes us inherently happy. And again, I'm sure if you would have a character saying that, well, practically any, anything you could say could be made problematic now. But but he would tell those, and he regarded that as a story against himself. Yeah, and, which it was, um, and. And I know that from writing and co-writing with Wilbur, you know, when, particularly now, I was very conscious of how to write um, respectful, authentic, I hope, um, African characters of every race and creed. I mean, you know, because you know, we are, after all, everybody on this earth either was born in Africa or is descended from Africans. I mean. Mm all homo sapiens is descended from africa
1: yeah i think the other thing with wilbur um and it actually goes back to an early point you're making as well he is very he's open-minded and equal-minded about just about everything so you said that you know when he writes about sex between people um it's almost as though he's not differentiating between you know sex between people and sex between you know animals or other animals Mm. um and in the same way, I think um, he just sees people. I, I, I genuinely think that the characters in his books, whether they're black or white or Asian or wherever they come from, uh, he is just seeing people. And there are good people. There are bad people. There are people, you know, mostly with good and bad elements in them that sort of play out in different ways. Um, but I think he's very, very clear eyed. He doesn't and he doesn't romanticize anyone Um but at the same time, he doesn't sort of vilify them either. It's just he sort of. Um, I think. I think it, he really is e- exemplifying. You know, the, judge a person by their by the content of their character, not the content of their skin. Not oh, sorry, not the color of their skin. These so, days,
0: of course, that Martin Luther King's words almost constitute racism because nowadays you have to do. And, and I, I remember years ago interviewing George Foreman, the boxer, and Muhammad Ali, his great adversary, had said, understandably said that. There was something wrong with black people fighting one another for the entertainment of white people, which strikes me as an entirely reasonable point of view. And I put this to Foreman. I said, How did he feel about that? And he's a very sweet, gentle guy. And actually, he got a look in his eyes. I thought, Oh dear. I don't The word dear was not the word that came to mind. <laughs> I think I'm in trouble here. And he said, Because he, he's a preacher. I mean, literally, he is a preacher. He said, I refuse to see color. I only see human beings. Now, his justification for that was a religious justification, which is we're all created equal in the sight of God. But that is now something which is a very controversial thing to say. But I suspect that's exactly what Wilbur would have said, too. Yeah. One thing I did actually was, about Wilbur, he doesn't talk about a leper rock but... It's interesting how the how he writes about fathers and sons, yeah. he had difficult on off relationships with his children and his sons, and I think the first time I interviewed him ninety three he was very frank that, as far as he was concerned, at that point, I think things changed that that basically his children had views that were very different from his views fatherhood for him was was more problematic than either being a son or writing about fathers and sons and i think a lot of his problems got resolved over the years but there certainly was a period in which he was estranged and a lot of it was a very kind of african my way or the highway i have my my way of looking at the world which I think had a lot to do with hard work. And you you kind of kids of the 60s and 70s have a different view. And, you know, when you change your views, I'll listen to you again. Yeah. I think, again, that may have changed. I think he changed a lot in his latter years and probably became more open-minded about that kind of thing. But it was I was very struck by the fact that this person who wrote about fathers and sons so powerfully that being a father had been, not entirely satisfied. From
1: him. If you know, if if Africa is his subject, then fathers and sons is definitely his theme that he comes back to again and again and again. Um, and it, it's interesting in in when the lion feeds. Um, obviously, Sean has actually is quite a good relationship with his father. Really, I mean, they have their fallings out, but, but um, basically, it's a very strong.
0: And Wilbur is a very good son. I mean, he you know he, yeah he his when his father had been very successful, kind of fell on hard times. You know, and Will was in a position to look after him. He was happy to do so. And, I mean, even going back to what you were saying about changing times, after all, the the kind of social and moral mores of 1930s colonial Africa, I don't think would have been that different from Victorian ones. I think they were. Now, if you then fast forward kind of 30 years to the 60s, the, the change that has happened in those thirty years is far greater than anything that happened in the previous century. You've had a complete convulsion. You've basically had a point where where kids feel not, not only it's their right, but it's almost their duty to kind of not respect their parents. And it's like you know, screw you. You know, this is a new world, man. It's, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play our funky music. We're gonna grow our hair. We're gonna wear our sh- skirts short. You know, this is the sixties. You know, and and the seventies. After that. So he would have seen in, 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 in the years between being a boy and being a father this convulsive change, which, which was far greater than between his, his grandfather, his father, and himself
1: yeah that's that's a good point and of course uh, he would not have been the only father of that generation to, to struggle with that indeed
0: yeah. indeed absolutely yeah. and
1: of course in the uh, sequel to when the lion feeds uh Sand of thunder of course we see sean struggling with fatherhood and actually yeah.
0: um
1: he, yeah. he he finds it very challenging but
0: well, that that actually I, that, that may well be again <laughs> life life into yeah. art you know
1: yeah um I think we're coming to the end of the episode, but just before we wrap up, I I think we should just, um, that last thing you said about life into art, uh, because Wilbur getting this book published, but getting When the Lion Feeds published, which is his great breakthrough um, and and the moment that changes his life. Um, So Wilbur's written uh, a first attempted novel uh, with what I think he uh, himself admitted later was a fairly pretentious title, The Gods First Make Mad, um, and has been trying to to get it sold and he and failing um and he he writes in in on leopard rock about how the, the literary success he'd had was a short story that he'd had published um about about climbing uh, about rock climbing uh, and that this was based very much on his experiences rock climbing and he had the moment of insight he has is that the reason that story worked and the reason he liked it and the reason readers liked it was because it had that you are there ver- verisimilitude. Um, and, and his insight is, uh, that's what I need to be writing about. I shouldn't be writing about what other people, what I think other people think I should be writing about. I should just, it's kind of the classic advice, write what you know. Um, and uh, again, there's a great quote in on Leopard Rock. He says, I, I, I wrote about all the things I know knew well and loved better, hunting, gold mining, carousing in women, love and loving and hating black people and white. Um, and in a sense, everything that we've talked about in, in this episode and also in the episodes about When the Lion Feeds, sort of encapsulated by that, yeah. um, th- this idea that it's he needs to, to mine his own life um, and his own passions in order to not just for it to work for the reader, but I think really for it to work for himself. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. I, the, the, the other thing which is completely unrelated, sort of related to that, which I loved about On Methodrol, is that he's incredibly specific about the exact amount of money he's getting paid yes. at <laughs> every stage, in, like when the first check comes in from the book. And of course, I love that because when writers get together, money is a huge, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a huge subject. Writers really care about money a lot.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: I, I, and again, that's a kind of typical will but honesty. It's like, I'm not going to be pussyfooting about this. This is what I got paid. Um, yeah. And this is what I was able to do with it and and where I was able to go. And then and by the end of the book, you look at the things he's doing on a regular basis, that he's partridge shooting in Spain. He has an island in North, wonderful island hideaway in the Seychelles. He goes to Alaska every year. It's just astonishing. I mean, it's just a, there's a wonderful point towards the end of the book where he actually runs full tilt to a grizzly bear because a great big grizzly bear, has, has, he's, left, he's left his pack with some chocolate in it on one side of a river while he's salmon fishing, I suppose, on the other side of the river. And he looks up to see a grizzly bear with chocolate all over its muzzle, ripping up his brand new expensive cool backpack. And he's so cross about this, he runs across the river and charges the grizzly bear <laughs> only when he gets there does he think to himself, oh, I'm now confronted by a seven foot tall, incredibly angry <laughs> grizzly bear. Um, at which point, for once in the book, there are two times he Beats haste to retreat. One is when he's cornered by sharks underwater in the Seychelles. Mm-hmm. And the other is when he stares into the eyes of a grizzly bear realises he does not have a gun about his person and thinks that actually discretion is the better part of violence. Hears <laughs> back across the river, leaving the grizzly bear still covered in chocolate to go wandering off contentedly into the woods.
1: And in fact, I mean, I think going back to the start of this episode, um, when we're talking about, you know, Wilbur's sean versus his Garrickness, I mean, that's that's it, isn't it? The Shawn in him charges the grizzly bear and the Garrick in him then thinks, actually, hold on a sec, this is not going to end well and, and, and beats a retreat.
0: I think it's it's good to remember that, that that there's not just this stereotypical white african but there's a human being who was completely aware of his own failings and foibles the the memory of him running away from the chocolate smeared grizzly bear i think a nice one on which to on which to leave him
1: yeah and i think we'll probably leave it there
0: yes Wilbur's novels, of course, are not just superb adventure stories, but brilliant historical accounts too. And in the next couple of episodes, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at some of the real-life historical events from When the Lion Feeds, which form the background to Sean Courtney's adventures. So next time, we'll be discussing the Anglo-Zulu War with historian Saul David, and you won't want to miss that. So please join me, Diana Thomas, and me, Tom Harper, for more from that Wilbur Smith show.
1: Christmas show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.